Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. Kazakh bodybuilder who married sex doll reveals agony as she is broken, just before Christmas. Kazakh bodybuilder Yuri Toliko, who recently married his plastic girlfriend, Margot, has revealed that his wife has broken just before the Christmas holidays and is being repaired. Muscleman Toliko said that the couple's reunion will be a true gift for both of them as they plan to spend New Year together. She is broken. Now she is being repaired. She's in another city. When she recovers, it will be a gift for both of us, the athlete said. The Kazakh Hulk, who claims to have been inseparable from Margot since their first meeting, has become an internet star after announcing his intention to marry the sex doll. The first picture of the unusual couple emerged on social media in May 2019, with Toliko happily sharing all the details of their affair with his followers. The athlete had wanted to marry his plastic fiance in the spring, but their wedding was postponed due to COVID-19 restrictions. Toliko, who finally tied the knot with Margot last month, gladly accepts invitations to take part in TV shows where he talks about his family life. In general, I began to be jealous of Margot. Many men would like to imagine the same. After the wedding, I decided to show her less to people, I forbade her from Instagram, I did this a long time ago. Maybe I'm being too selfish. But that's the beauty of Margot, that I can do this to her and she won't mind, the bodybuilder said. Rape and murder rates can wait. Met police are now on the case of the most important issue of all, gender-neutral uniforms. Bosses at the Metropolitan Police are consulting the force's 30,000 officers about how to create a non-binary uniform to wear in the fight against crime, as officers race to the crime scenes in their rainbow-painted cop cars. Well, this is something the 9 million or so folk of London can all look forward to. In just a few short years, when the police arrest you for the vicious, aggravated assault of using gender-specific pronouns, which will be, probably, a hanging offence, you can enjoy having the cuffs slipped over your wrists by a gender-neutral officer from the Metropolitan Police. Britain's biggest police force could be about to introduce uniforms that don't threaten to damage the fragile feelings of the minuscule number of non-binary folk amongst those 9 million Londoners. In case you, oh you lucky sod, have somehow missed the incessant onslaught of noise about these poor benighted non-binary souls, let me truly ruin your day and explain. Non-binary simply means a person who does not identify as either male or female. It doesn't matter what they actually keep in their pants, nor the chromosomes within the very cells that actually are inarguably binary XX is a female, XY is a male. No arguments, no discussions. Nature, you see, doesn't give a damn about anyone's feelings, woke or otherwise. The Wokies can take that one up with God, when their times come. It is there to try and give confidence to our LGBT plus community, but also to other underrepresented groups. Ex-cop Harry Miller, who founded campaign group Fair Cop, doesn't quite agree with rainbow-painted patrol cars being a priority. 
We don't see the Met with special cars for knife crime, even though the number of stabbings in London is appalling. The problem is that, the second that you see a rainbow car, you know that it is a police force that has made its mind up about some very contentious issues. You no longer see a police car or a police officer who is there to support everyone, from all political persuasions, without fear or favor. They have literally tied their colors to the mast and painted the cars with their political leanings. They are painting rainbows on the cars when we have figures showing that only 7% of violent crime ends in a prosecution. They have moved from policing crime to policing thoughts and speech, because it is easier. Ouch. That was a bit of a truncheon blow to those non-binary private parts. Ah, oh, and there's a thing, British police officers still do not routinely carry guns, but they do tend to carry a truncheon, I'd suggest that's a very masculine weapon to have hanging from their belts, male or female. Maybe they can give them a makeover to, every color of the rainbow. But, well, that's a conundrum for another day. Hate crimes reach highest level in 12 years with black and Asian people increasingly targeted. Hate crimes in the U.S. have increased in 2020 to the highest level in 12 years, particularly incidents aimed at black and Asian victims, according to a recently released FBI report. The FBI reported that 7,759 hate crimes occurred last year, a 6% increase over 2019's numbers, and the most since 2008, when 7,783 hate crimes were reported. According to the Washington Post, it is the sixth time in the past seven years that the number of recorded hate crimes has increased. According to the FBI's data, hate crimes have increased 42% since 2014. When broken down by race, black people still face the bulk of racially charged attacks. In 2019, black people were the victims of 1,930 attacks. In 2020, that number rose to 2,755. Asian victims suffered 274 attacks, an increase from 158 in 2019. Attacks targeting white people rose to 773, a 16% increase over 2019. The data suggests there was actually a decrease in hate crimes against Hispanic people, dropping from 761 in 2019 to 685 in 2020. Civil rights groups have warned that hostility toward minorities has been on the rise, particularly due to a rise in white nationalism and violent crime. Hate crime data is gathered by the FBI from self-reporting by local law enforcement agencies. Agencies are not compelled to self-report, and most of the agencies that do participate in reporting recorded no hate crimes in their jurisdictions. Due to the nature of crime data in the U.S., congressional Democrats and civil rights organizations have worried that hate crimes are actually underreported. They claim that local police agencies are not trained to properly identify instances of hate crimes or generally do not have the resources or interest in fully investigating the incidents. Stop AAPI hate, 
Grassroots group aimed at curbing anti-Asian hate incidents, reported there were 6,660 hate incidents aimed at Asian Americans between March 2020 and March of this year. Most of the incidents 65% were incidents involving verbal harassment, and 12.6% involved assault. Federal hate crime data includes crimes driven by race, sexual orientation, racial or ethnic ethnic ancestry, religion, disability, gender and gender identity, or incidents including multiple biases. Race and ethnic ancestry was the primary driver of hate crimes, accounting for 4,939 of the reported 7,759 incidents. Religion and sexual orientation were the second and third highest categories, with 1,174 and 1,051 incidents, respectively. Congress moved in May to approve the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, requiring the U.S. Department of Justice to appoint an official task with expediting investigations into hate crimes reported to federal law enforcement agencies. The measure also aims to improve online reporting channels and expanding its resources to help immigrants who may face language barriers when seeking to report report incidents. U.S. has no right to block Iran's legitimate trade, Tehran says in wake of fuel deal with Lebanon. Last week, the Iranian foreign ministry signaled the Islamic Republic's readiness to ship additional fuel to Lebanon in order to alleviate the suffering of the Lebanese people, who have been hit by an economic meltdown. Iran's foreign ministry spokesman Saeed Khatibzadeh has warned Washington against hampering Tehran's trade with other countries apparently referring to Iranian fuel shipments to Lebanon. The U.S. is not in a position to block legitimate trade. We are very serious about exercising our sovereignty and everyone should know that legitimate trade in this sphere is one of the basic principles of international law, Khatibzadeh told reporters on Monday. The remarks come a week after he announced that Iran was ready to send fuel again to Lebanon if needed, adding that the Islamic Republic, certainly cannot see the suffering of the Lebanese people, who are currently in the grip of a fuel crisis. This followed reports that Saeed Hassan Nasrallah, leader of the Lebanese political group and militant force Hezbollah, had volunteered to tackle Lebanon's fuel shortages by clinching a deal with Iran to start fuel shipments to the Mediterranean country. Hezbollah, a close ally of Iran, is blacklisted by most Western countries as a terrorist group. On the 22nd of August, Nasrallah argued that the first vessel carrying Iranian fuel had already docked and that more such ships were already on their way to Lebanon. The statement came amid concerns that the fuel shipments from Iran may prod Washington to slap sanctions on the already suffering Lebanese economy for buying petrol from the Islamic Republic. U.S. sanctions on Tehran's oil exports, which were reinstated after then-U.S. President Donald 
Trump unilaterally left the 2015 Iran nuclear deal in 2018, aimed to reduce the Islamic Republic's crude sales to zero. Fuel shortages remain an issue for the Lebanese government as it grapples with the country's two-year-long economic crisis, which has been exacerbated by political turmoil, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, and a massive blast that took place in Beirut's port last year. Last week, the government moved to end subsidies for fuel products, prompting a 70% rise in petroleum prices, which triggered further public uproar amid the continuing protests over fuel shortages. To lose weight, follow the 1960 diet. I used to eat out with someone about 5 feet 3 inches who stayed slim for the 20 years I knew her. We ate out a lot because we had a business relationship that involved meeting at dinner. I was amazed that someone so petite didn't easily gain weight. Her secret was simple. I thought of her recently when I was researching a story about lifestyle in the 1960s. People were a lot slimmer then. While it's true that life has changed in the last 60 years, 1960 wasn't exactly prehistoric times. What happened? Well, a lot has happened, and there are several potential reasons why we added so many pounds. So, first, let's eliminate the things we can't or don't want to change. There have been lifestyle changes since the 1960s that affect how much exercise we get. We own far more cars and drive more, rather than walking. In 1960 we owned 430 vehicles for every 1,000 people, and today we own over 800. Kids in 1960 went outside to play after school until dark. They, and we, didn't have screens to entertain us potentially all day long. Exercise is not the answer. We are not giving up our cars and our screens, so let's put that aside for now. I'm a huge believer in the importance of exercise, especially walking, for overall well-being. But for now, let's tackle something we are more likely to change, something that will have a bigger impact. Once you lose weight, you'll be more motivated to add exercise. We are eating so much that it would take an unrealistic amount of exercise to make a difference. We are eating so much that it would take an unrealistic amount of exercise to make a difference. Today, the average American woman weighs 170 pounds. In 1960, the average woman weighed 140 pounds. For men, the difference is about the same, an extra 30 pounds. People were not exercising that much more in 1960. The difference is how much more food we eat now. In 1960 people ate much smaller portions. A muffin or bagel was about one-half to one-third of the size. A burger was about four to five ounces. Today, a typical burger is about twice that size. Much larger portions account for many hundreds of calories every single day. Meal portions were much smaller. People also rarely ate out at restaurants. Today, most of us, pre-pandemic, eat out often. Restaurant portions are huge. 
That friend I referred to was a magazine editor in the late 1990s, and in those days, if you wanted publicity, you wined and dined the editor. She ate out a lot. I knew this, which is why I couldn't understand how she stayed slim. But she had a trick that I could see when we went out. She ate only half of what was served to her. She always saved the rest to take home and enjoyed an extra meal while saving hundreds of calories. When we eat out, we always share the main dish. Even when I feel like it won't be enough, I'm rarely hungry when the check comes. Americans eat large quantities of food, and we don't even know when we are full. We often eat beyond being full. We eat until we are stuffed. There are hundreds of diets to help you lose weight. There are protein diets and Mediterranean diets and raw food diets, and calorie-based diets. As most people who've dieted learn, very few diets result in long-term weight loss. The only way to weigh less is to change the way you eat forever. Eat the way people ate in 1960. Well, maybe not the cheese fondue or chicken a la king, but eat the amount they ate. In the beginning, don't worry too much about what the food is. Eat foods you like and foods you find satisfying. You can replace unhealthy foods with healthier foods as step two. It will take a while to adjust to eating smaller quantities, but the trick is to eat less than you consider a single portion. Wait a little while after you finish eating to see if you're still hungry. Until you adjust to smaller portions, have a small healthy snack to hold you over until the next meal. When you eat out, either share your meal or eat half and take home the rest. We don't need to complicate diets. Start by adjusting how much food you take into your body. Once you begin to eat less, you are well on your way. 5 Science-Backed Ways to Get High Without Taking Drugs I started running when I was 15. It gave me a good feeling from the beginning. One day I was running at a lake near my hometown when suddenly I had the feeling I could run forever. All my worries were gone. This feeling of happiness stayed for a few more hours. It was my first runner's high. Since that day and after being diagnosed with depression and generalized anxiety disorder, I've always searched for ways to become a healthier person. During the last 10 years, I've made massive progress in terms of mental and physical health. My diet is plant-based, and I became a yoga teacher. Multiple activities give me the same feeling I had when I first experienced a runner's high. Here are the top 5 activities I want to share with you that have helped me become a happier person. Not only running can lead to a release of endorphins. All activities in the aerobic range might cause these highs. For a long time, researchers believed that endorphins caused the runner's high. Today they assume that endocannabinoids are the main reason. According to Healthline, they have the following effect, these molecules act on your endocannabinoid system. This is the same system that's affected by tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, the active compound in cannabis. 
Like endorphins, exercise releases endocannabinoids into the bloodstream. If you feel euphoric or deeply relaxed after a run, these molecules may be the responsible party. If and when a runner's high occurs depends on how often and intense the person is training. It may occur after 30 minutes of exercise or after one hour. In general, it is more likely to experience a runner's high after 30 minutes or more. Short aerobic workouts of 15 minutes won't lead to a natural high. Even though you might not be under the lucky ones who experience a high while running, it has some general effects on your health that can make you happier. According to Medical News Today, running has the following positive effects on our minds and bodies. Running reduces the risk of dying from cardiovascular diseases. Running has a positive impact on our body mass index. It reduces symptoms of depressions and leads to less depressive episodes. Running lowers our cholesterol level. There's evidence that running improves sleep quality. 2. Do something good among countless other intellectuals, authors, and philosophers who share the same opinion. There's a Chinese saying that gets to the heart of generous acts. If you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help somebody. A study from 2019 shows that practicing acts of kindness can improve a person's self-esteem and lead to more happiness. By causing a happiness high, doing something good is likely to be repeated. Another study from 2013 proves that acts of kindness increase life expectancy because of reduced stress levels. The act of giving others attention, help, money will make us happier. We only need to make sure that no one takes advantage of us. Jenny Santi, the author of the book, The Giving Way to Happiness, says in an article of The Time, the key is to find the approach that fits us. When we do, then the more we give, the more we stand to gain purpose, meaning, and happiness, all of the things that we look for in life but are so hard to find. When you hear something like, just laugh, or, live, love, laugh, you might roll your eyes. But there's more to humor and laughter than cheesy quotes. Laughter has powerful benefits. Laughing improves the immune system, boosts your mood, and reduces pain. After a fun day with your friends, your whole body is completely relaxed for at least 45 minutes. Also, your stress level lowers, your blood flow increases, and you even burn calories. Humor does not only make you happier in the short term. Laughing together will improve your relationships, attract other like-minded people, and enhance teamwork in the long term. You can add value to your social life by spending time with your friends more often. Ask funny questions to bring yourself and your friends into a good mood, e.g., tell me the funniest thing that has ever happened to you. Also, I have regular game nights with my friends. Laughter is a huge part of it, and everyone goes home happier. Even simulated laughter can lead to a happiness high.
There are laugh yoga groups in almost every bigger city that you can join. Hearing others laugh, even though you are not in a good mood, can boost your happiness. 4. Practice yoga as a yoga teacher myself, I am highly convinced by the positive effects it brings. Studies on the effects of yoga asana have shown that yoga reduces stress, anxiety, and fatigue. It does not only help to stay fit and reducing physical pain, but it also elevates the mood in the long term. It's crucial to know that simple stretching exercises won't have the same effect as doing yoga. The correct breathing technique is key. A study from 2011 observed the effects of yoga for over four months with two different groups. One group did stretching exercises while the other group practiced yoga. Greater Good magazine writes the following on the results of the study. During that time, the yoga group improved their inspiratory and expiratory pressures, the low, high frequency ratio of heart rate variability, and heart rate variability itself, all markers of better cardiovascular and respiratory function. Simply stretching didn't have the same effects. Another study conducted during a yoga retreat showed that a regular yoga practice decreases inflammatory processes in the body. Therefore yogis are less likely to develop high blood pressure, diabetes, and autoimmune diseases. Many yogis and yoga teachers know the bliss that occurs after a good yoga class. The whole body feels soft and detoxed. The mind is clear, stress and harmful thoughts disappear at least for a few hours. Yoga can add great happiness to your life. Waking up after a good night in a bed with fresh sheets can give you a feeling of light-heartedness. Even though we do not feel high when waking up, a good night's sleep will provide us with a sense of satisfaction. Medical News Today writes about a study on sleep quality. They found that good sleep has the same effect as eight weeks of mindful cognitive therapy or winning a quarter of a million in the lottery. Better sleep feels like eight weeks of therapy or winning a quarter of a million. According to Mayo Clinic, there are six steps to developing better sleep. Stick to a sleep schedule. Go to bed and get up every day at the same time. Don't go to bed hungry or with a full stomach. Create a restful environment. Darken your room and use earplugs if there are lots of noises. Limit your daytime naps to 30 minutes. Integrate physical activity into your daily life. Try to resolve problems and worries before you go to bed. My tip, if you cannot calm your mind, write your concerns into a journal or read this article on stopping overthinking. Remember that you deserve to be happy. Instead of using unhealthy substances, integrate these mood boosters into your daily life. After a while, you'll see that chasing feel-good hormones will make you a happier person. Since I run regularly, practice yoga, and prioritize my sleep, I feel mentally healthier and more balanced. Start with small steps, take your time and find a routine that fits your needs. Take care, this is Misty 101 Podcast.
Visit misty101.com for great offers, blogs and free delivery. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.